The Eagle and Child, Episode 10. Mere Christianity, Book 2, Chapter 3, The Shocking Alternative. Hello, and welcome to The Eagle and Child, the hallowed pub of the Inklings. This is a podcast where each week my friend Matt and I share a beer and discuss the writings of the author known to the world as Clive Staples Lewis, or C.S. Lewis, or just as Jack to his friends. My name is David, and today I'm excited because Jack finally talks about Jesus. And, as always, I'm joined by someone who is a fan of both C.S. Lewis and Jesus, Matt. And hopefully not in that order, (laughs) but I do worry sometimes based on which one I spend more time with. I think you're okay. Jack always points you to Jesus. I like that. I'll take that. I'm also excited because today we're going to get into this discussion of free will and evil. And just to tease the listener, we'll be going through some questions like, was evil the will of God? Why make creatures of such rotten stuff if we can do evil? How did Satan go wrong? How did God combat this? And ultimately, how do we get back into communion with God? Exactly. These are some pretty intense questions. With that, back to our shock top. Cheers. Cheers. So we kick off today's chapter with the problem of evil. Thus far in the book, we've reasoned to the existence of God. In the last chapter, we rejected dualism as an explanation of evil. But we were left with the devil and Christianity and the presence of evil in this world. So the question that we then naturally want to ask is, well, if there's evil in the world, does that mean that God wills it? Yeah, because that creates a dilemma, that concept. If God wills it, he's a strange God. If he doesn't, well, how can anything happen contrary to the will of a being with absolute power? So how do we resolve this dilemma? Lewis says that he believes that anyone who's held a position of authority over others should be able to explain the resolution of this dilemma. He says, you make a thing voluntary, and then half the people don't do it. That is not what you willed, but your will made it possible. Basically, what he's saying is that God wills that we have free will, but that immediately opens the door to the possibility that we misuse our free will to cause evil. Have you ever been part of a group where someone leading it has made something optional? I was was part of a Bible study where people were encouraged to bring food, but it wasn't a rule. And... They went for several weeks when it was just one person bringing food. That happens a lot in volunteering circles. Mm -hmm. You have to have some sort of accountability. In the workplace, accountability is very clear. Yeah, you get fired or don't get paid. (laughs) Exactly. In a a nonprofit or volunteering role, that is not the case. Mm -hmm. Now, Jack says that some people say that they can imagine a creature that had free will, but also had no possibility of going wrong. And he says that he can't imagine such a creature. And in truth, neither can I. That just doesn't make sense to me. Not at all. There is a flip side to free will, though. He says, free will, though it makes evil possible, is also the only thing that makes possible any love or goodness or joy worth having. And what's interesting is now we're starting to be presented with this trade-off between free will and evil. You might be asking the question, well, was it worth it? Did God make the right choice? Because look at how much evil there is. Is the love really offsetting the amount of evil? And Jack says, yeah. (laughs) 
he thinks short it, answer. He thinks it is. God clearly thought it was. Yep. And it's kind of pointless to argue otherwise. <laughs> because your very faculties that you use to reason comes from him. You're arguing with a guy that created the ability for you to argue. Mm-hmm. I'd still probably argue. Probably. I've heard it said that every Christian wants to serve God. The problem is, is that most of them just want to serve him in an advisory capacity. <laughs> I like that. I'm going to remember that one. The next point Jack makes is truly mind-blowing. A man once asked Lewis, All right, why did God make man out of such bad stuff? And he must have made him out of bad stuff, because look how badly he went wrong. That's kind of logical. And Lewis's response is rather profound. He says, The better, the more powerful something, the worse it can be when it goes wrong. An example Lewis gives is think of a cow. Cannot be very good or very bad. A dog, a little bit better, a little bit worse. Child, even more so. And an ordinary man, still more so. A man of genius, even more so. Build this all the way to Satan, who was created with the potential to be the most beautiful angel, becomes Satan. He can be the best, or he can be the worst of all. Think of the greatest virtue becomes the greatest vice. St. Paul's life is the perfect example of that. He was Saul, killing Christians, and he becomes Paul, spreading Christianity more than anyone else. He's this, but working in reverse. Exactly. We mentioned him in the previous chapter, and once again, we return to the devil. And Jack asks, what was it that caused Satan to go wrong? Fair question. This angel of light, what went wrong? And with typical Lewis humility, he says it's actually kind of hard for us to say for certain. But he does say that the moment that you have a self at all, there's always the possibility of putting yourself first, becoming the center, wanting to be God, in fact. And he says that this was the sin of Satan. And then he says something rather chilling. Oh, extremely chilling. He says, this was the sin he taught the human race. And what did he teach us to do? To invent some sort of happiness for ourselves apart from God. And that statement right there is the source of so much of the evil in this world. He points out, out of that hopeless attempt for happiness apart from God has come nearly all that we call human history. Money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery. The long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. That line there, something other than God, that's the title of a book by Jennifer Fulweiler describing her conversion from atheism to Christianity. Have you read it? Never read it, but great story. Two weeks ago, at least from when we're recording this, probably not from when this will be released, I met her. Oh, you're just trying, you're trying to one-up me. It's off ever since Raniero. Well, nothing's gonna, <laughs> I think Jennifer would say she doesn't one-up Raniero, but... But she was at a Notre Dame football game, the USC one. As you might expect, yes. Mm -hmm. I, I was surprised, but a friend told me who really loves her. She was an influential person in, this, in my friend's life. She was going to be there doing a show before the football game. So we went up and she was setting it. She hadn't started yet. And we just chatted with her for a little bit. And then I went tailgating. They went back and got, <laughs> and got on her show. I love Jennifer for a while. I, she's very sassy, very funny. I can completely confirm that after meeting her. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So if I would have went back, it would have been on our show, but tailgating was more important. <laughs> but that idea of something other than God, she really hones in on that in the book. The idea that we always try and search for meaning and happiness in something, anything other than God. And I love that concept because I can resonate with it so well. Without going into detail, that was more or less the way I would describe my journey in high school and college before a couple years after college really coming into my faith. I was digging into faith in college, but my most of my life was dedicated to worldly ambition, worldly success, accomplishments. In by a worldly standard, at that point in time, I was actually doing quite well with that. But I, all I was left with was an emptiness, insecurity, lack of peace. And it was actually reading this book, Lewis, that made me think, maybe there's another way. Maybe I've been doing this all wrong. And mere Christianity pointed that out to me. And Jack uses the example of a car, of doing it all wrong. He says, a car is made to run on petrol and wouldn't run properly on anything else. So we got to get rid of corn, guys. Come on. <laughs> he says that the human machine, we were made to run on God himself. And because of that, God can't give us happiness apart from himself. Because happiness isn't going to be there. We keep trying to run our cars on the wrong juice. This is what Satan's done to us. He keeps telling us that we need to fill up this tank with, with sin, with evil. Something, anything other than God. And it's so cunning. When you look at it in the cold light of day, it's pure foolishness. I've heard Peter Kraft, the philosophy professor at Boston College, he says that we are morally insane. We keep filling up the tank with sin, expecting something to happen. When we sin, sin always promises us more than it ever delivers. And yet we still keep going back to it, keep thinking that it's now going to finally make good on its promise, that we are going to be able to find happiness outside of God. To quote St. Augustine and the tagline of my other podcast, you made us for yourself, O Lord, and our hearts will wander restless until we rest in you. Of course, that wasn't a shameless plug. And that wasn't a shameless plug at no, all. Restless not. Heart, found on iTunes and Google Play. <laughs> so how did God respond to all of this? We've talked about free will, but how this enables evil. We've talked about how Satan has taken advantage of that and place this idea of choosing things other than God in our minds and our hearts so that way we find that unhappiness by being apart from God. What, what's the response to this? And Lewis identifies four things. First one, our conscience. Let's just go back to that moral law we talked about in the beginning. He left us a conscience, and all through history, there have been people trying, some of them extremely hard, to obey it. So as well as conscience, Jack says God sent us what he calls good dreams. He describes them as those queer stories scattered throughout the heathen religions about a God who dies and who comes to life again. Now, this is a subtle point, and it's very open to misunderstanding. Some critics might rashly conclude that what Lewis is saying here, he's endorsing the idea that Christianity is simply a clone, a warmed-over version of paganism. And that's not what he's saying. He's saying that God has stamped the Christian story so deeply into the world, so deeply into the human imagination and the human heart, that we keep coming up with stories that were, albeit limited and imperfect, approximations of the story, his story. And the third thing he did 
was formed Israel. And he selected one particular people and spent several centuries hammering into their head the sort of God he was, that there was only one of him and he cared about right conduct. And this is the story of the Old Testament. One note on this. Some people might think of God's selection of Israel as something unfair, something exclusive. However, Israel wasn't set apart just simply for their own benefit. They were called to be the light of the nations, as the prophet Isaiah has it. They were called to draw people to worship God. They were meant to be the older brother in the family of nations who would teach his younger brother, his younger siblings, to adore the one true God. This was the point of Israel, to call the nations together and also to prepare a time and a place for the Messiah to come. And that leads us very neatly into the fourth point. Drumroll. Jesus. Now, it is very popular these days to deny that Jesus claimed divinity. I hear that all the time, actually. Mm-hmm. And in fact, denial of Jesus' divinity is an important part of religions like Islam, as well as a number of quasi-Christian sects. However, Lewis gives a very short but compelling argument against this. Yeah, listen to how he describes the advent of Jesus, his original coming. Among these Jews, there suddenly turns up a man who goes about talking as if he was God. Among pantheists, there would be nothing very odd about that. But this man, since he was a Jew, could not mean that kind of God. So in other religions, you could say, oh, I am one with God. I am a part of God. The pantheism that we rejected a few chapters ago. You can say that. But when you're talking within the framework of monotheistic Judaism and somebody claims to be God, the God outside of the universe who made everything, that's a very different proposition. Exactly. He says, and when you have grasped that, you will see that what this man said was quite simply the most shocking thing that has ever been uttered by human lips. And he zooms in on one particular point that he says is often overlooked. Jesus told people that their sins were forgiven. Which is weird to think about. Yeah, because Jack says he never waited to consult the other people whom those sins had undoubtedly injured. It'd be one thing if you wronged me and I said, I forgive your sin, David. What if this third party said, I forgive both your sins? Be like, <laughs> what do you have to do with this, man? Yeah, Jack says he unhesitatingly behaved as if he was the person chiefly offended by all offenses. I'm reminded of the psalm where David is confessing his sin to God and he says, Against you, you alone have I sinned. What is evil in your sight I have done. I think it's Psalm 50, 51. Yeah. It's a radical thing to think about. Yeah. That when, and because David had just sinned with Bathsheba, he had yeah. sinned against her, he had sinned against her husband. But in here, he recognizes the person he's ultimately sinned against is God. A side point here that I think is extremely important we believe they need to ask for our forgiveness. That's putting us ahead of God because ultimately, yes, that person wronged us, and yes, there, there should be for a relationship to work a righting of that wrong. But more importantly, we should be praying that that person asks for forgiveness from God, mm -hmm. which is a really radical way of thinking about that. Yeah, it definitely takes the power out of and the indignation of being wronged. It does. And Jack contrasts this with the other things that Jesus said. He said that he is meek and humble of heart. And when we're reading the New Testament, we believe him. But if Jesus was only a man... This is what Jack says. Humility and meekness are the very last characteristics we could attribute to some of his sayings. 
And this is one of the most famous sections of mere Christianity and one of the most enduring arguments of Lewis. This trilemma. Jesus was either lunatic, liar, or Lord. He says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said could not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic, on the level of man who said that he's a poached egg, <laughs> or else he would be the devil from hell. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You have limited options here. Lunatic, liar, or lord. And notice, one of those options is not a moral teacher, which I have once actually believed myself and heard many people reduce Jesus to. Lewis says, you can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. And we have to make a choice. Which do we think he is? Lunatic, liar, or Lord? I like that. I think I hear the closing bell. Yep. And as always, my notes and quotes for this chapter will be in the show notes, as well as a link to a C.S. Lewis doodle for this section. Please like, share, and subscribe. Find us on iTunes, Google Play. Contact us through the website, restlesspilgrim.net. Tweet us on at Pints with Jack. And join us next week when we're going to be going further up and further in. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>